so I think it was Christina who uh, said in the uh, opening uh, session that um, we're going to, in the first week, we're going to run through sort of standard um, insight meditation instructions. <clears throat> and then after that, we'll get to uh, take it in different directions. So I want to pick up a little bit and follow on from what Catherine was talking about yesterday. Um, and talk a little bit about the difficulties that can come up in meditation. Uh, and of course, there are all kinds of difficulties, all kinds uh, in life, definitely, and especially in meditation too. Um, classically, the Buddha... Uh, drew attention to five in particular, called the five hindrances, and that's what I want to explore a little bit today. Uh, And so these are worthy of extra attention, these five hindrances. And so you may know them, but let's just list them and then amplify a little bit through the talk. So uh, the first one is sense desire, when the mind is uh, pulled and distracted uh, by desiring this or that, some object of the senses. Second one is, um, what could we say, ill will or aversion. The mind is caught up in negativity towards something or other, someone or other. A third one, dullness and drowsiness. The mind enveloped or sunken in a kind of fog of sluggishness, sleepiness, etc. Dullness and drowsiness. Uh, fourth one, restlessness and worry, the Buddha translates it, agitation of mind and body. And the fifth one, doubt, uh, confusion, the mind spinning or just paralyzed in doubt and not able to engage, not able to harmonize. So these are what's called the five hindrances. And what I want to do is uh, speak very specifically, uh, but also quite generally, uh, so both specific and general. And really, uh, as much as anything else, what I want to draw attention to is uh, so much here is about attitude and wisdom in relation to these five hindrances. So much hinges on the attitude, on the relationship, on on the way of seeing uh, them. So can we bring wisdom to these five hindrances uh, because we also able to able um, uh, surprisingly perhaps to get wisdom from them they actually can bring wisdom and we'll get to that and so starting with something quite general about attitude and about uh, wisdom in relation to them the Buddha, 2,600 years ago, whatever, whatever, however long it was the Buddha talks about these five hindrances and today we bump into them so there's something there about the humanity of these things. They are manifestations of our humanity. They're not particularly nice manifestations, but they're manifestations of our humanity. They're not uh, personal statements about who we are or how we are. And that's really, really important. The Buddha says they don't disappear, in fact, until full awakening. So it's part of the human condition to have these can I learn, can I try at least not to take them personally when they're around? It's not a personal reflection on me or my practice, where I'm at. I'm going backwards, I'm not getting anywhere, or I'm this kind of person or that kind of person. So what would it be to try and not take these personally? Really huge. Because if we take them personally it means this. Because I have this hindrance, it means I'm this kind of person. Or it means I'm not getting anywhere, I'm a failure as a meditator, I'm this, I'm that. If I take it personally, it exacerbates the hindrance, it exacerbates the suffering in the hindrance. That's pretty much guaranteed. This is huge in terms of attitude. How often, how often... 
the notions of self and progress and this self progressing on the path, how often that whole view, wrapped up in that, a view comes. We see the present moment's experience out of that uh, constellation, that construct, self progressing on the path. And then how often that view locks difficulty into place. Self and progress, a self progressing. It locks difficulty into place, and to use the Buddha's word, it feeds difficulty. He talks a lot about what feeds the hindrances and how do you starve the hindrances. So that view right there is a big feeder. Actually, I think it was just yesterday I got a a lovely, very insightful note from someone. Uh, I was experiencing persistent pain, not quite a hindrance, but something like that. Persistent pain in the body. Very, uh, quite intense, difficult, difficult, difficult. Days, 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 weeks. And then saw, oh, not even a conscious thought, but every uh, welling up of those sensations of pain was being interpreted by the mind, not even verbally, as a sign of my failure. If I was succeeding, this wouldn't be here, this would not manifest saw that, saw the delusion of that, and then what happens? The pain disappears, it lifts. The whole thing was being uh, locked into place by the very view that wasn't even a verbal view about self and progressing and interpretation of success and failure. So, sometimes we can hear that and say, oh, okay, drop, drop the whole notion of progress. Drop the whole notion of progress. Maybe, maybe. It's true, progress, I guess, is ultimately uh, not real. The whole notion of progress is ultimately not real. But maybe it's the self piece and the self tied in with the progress that needs a bit more looking at. Anyway, that's another thing. But there's something here about that self-view progressing on the path and the way it interprets what's happening that has an enormous effect. It's not a neutral factor. If we talk about... Um, Catherine started to yesterday. I don't know if she... Did she use the word samadhi? Does, does, yeah, good. Uh, so this was samadhi, S-A-M-A-D-H-I. Uh, and we talk about progress in samadhi. And uh, again, so much is about attitude, relationship, conception, conception of practice. How, how am I relating to this? What's my attitude? What's the way of conceiving? Very often what happens in relation to samadhi is that we, something in the mind contracts and begins to think of it as just about focusing. How long can I stay with the breath? How many breaths? How long can I stay with the metaphrases or whatever? And this, how long can I stay focused, ends up being the priority, the thing that gets elevated above everything else. There's a constriction there of the view, a big, big constriction of the view. And and again, it's going to have a lot of uh, uh, unfortunate consequences. The whole practice will become constricted. Often tightness comes or it dries up. We're squeezing the juice out of practice because it's just about how well am I focusing. And sometimes we don't see, hey, wait, wait, a lot, a lot of other stuff is going on here. Not, not just focusing, we're not just learning to focus the mind. A lot of other stuff is getting cultivated, really important, beautiful, beautiful things, beautiful qualities, patience. So the mind wanders and you bring it back. And there's patience being cultivated there. It's not just a moment of failure. It's a moment of cultivating patience. Perseverance. And that's an interesting word. And sometimes perseverance has a lot to do with determination, with steeliness, with will and fire. And sometimes perseverance needs softening. It's not so much about steeliness, it's about softening. So there's discernment, subtlety of discernment there. That perseverance is cultivated. Mindfulness is cultivated every time we see, oh, oh, the mind is somewhere else. Mindfulness is in the sense of knowing what's happening. Mindfulness is cultivated then. The muscle, 
see the mind over there, I bring it back, and I bring it back, and I bring it back, and soon, <laughs> soon you got a big muscle there. Uh, that m- power muscle of mind is actually a really important factor. Every time the mind is off, there's an opportunity to not judge, to let the judging go. That's huge, huge. Uh, kindness, all this, all, all this. So we need to see there's a much, much bigger picture happening than just focusing the mind. That's way too tight, way too narrow. Maybe those other qualities, patience, perseverance, mindfulness, kindness, letting go of judgment, the muscle of the mind, maybe they're actually more important than focusing in the long run, in the big picture of the path. Something in the view constricts and we don't see the bigger picture, the beauty of what else is happening in the very difficulty, in the very distractedness. So maybe it's really good at the beginning of a session or even halfway through, whatever, to remind yourself. Remind yourself of the bigger picture. Open it out because it will, it will tend for most people to constrict. And then there can be a different relationship. Different relationship with practice. Softer, more open, more kind, wiser. Everything depends on relationship. Everything depends on relationship. That's absolutely crucial if we can open it out this way. Sometimes people translate this word samadhi as concentration, meaning... How steady can the mind be on this object? How focused can it be? And actually, I think that's really not what the Buddha meant by this word, samadhi. Not, not at all. It's part of it. It's an element. When he talks about samadhi, he, talked about, he meant more a sense of unification. Body and mind unified, harmonized. The energy feels aligned. It feels open. Uh, something a little bit lovely, or sometimes quite lovely. So as Catherine was talking uh, yesterday can be really helpful if you're using the whole body awareness in this. Uh, can be very helpful uh, to be sensitive to what is in that field, what is in this field of the whole body. What are the different currents and energies and vibrations there? And one can be sensitive to that, sensitive to the resonances in that field picking up on that, picking up on the energies and a little bit tuning in to what's helpful. It's this tuning in that may be more important than the keeping the mind locked onto one place. The sensitivity, the openness, the tuning in to what's helpful here, what's helpful in this body space. So this harmonization of mind and body, this unification to whatever degree, very deep or just beginning, whatever, um, You know, it comes as much from opening the heart as it does from focusing the mind. You you know this probably. Times when the when the heart opens, when something softens, uh, the energies come into alignment. Something settles. Something very important to notice there. So that means that in 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 wanting to come more and more into some degree of samadhi we need to take care of kindness of connection of receptivity more important than nailing the mind into one small spot perhaps so this mind and body harmonizing also come they do come uh, from focusing to a certain extent partly they come from the focusing the steadiness of mind is because when, when the mind is steady we're actually letting go of a lot of other stuff it's the letting go that allows the mind, the body to settle, to unify, to harmonize. So because I'm just here, I'm not being caught up in all this other stuff. And that letting go allows the energy, the, the, uh, the whole being to harmonize. But that means also that uh, uh, an attitude, a relationship with things of letting be Letting be. What's this going on? What are these sensations in the body? Letting everything be. Letting them be. Letting them be. 
that really trying to encourage that attitude moment to moment will also bring the being, the body, the mind, in, into some kind of samadhi to, to a degree. Letting be. Why? It's because the pushing away and the pulling towards and the grabbing this and the wrestling with that, that's what agitates the mind. That's what brings... Uh, commotion and unsettledness the very pushing and pulling the fighting with things it also saps energy as we let go of all that uh, we, we gather energy because we're not squandering it in fighting and we're not losing it in this agitation So having said all that, what that means is that when we come to these five hindrances, um, what we get is a whole range of possible skillful responses. Um, And as we go through some of these, um, see, just make a general point, you can see some of them are are very kind of specific counter-remedies. When this is going on, you can apply this as an antidote and it's the kind of opposite, so it'll, it'll help. And some of them are more to do with investigation. Actually, uh, not trying to fight so much what is going on, but having a closer look at what's going on. Coming into a different relationship with this particular difficulty. And sometimes it's a mixture. But you can uh, see that there's, there's a range there. So let's take the first one, sense desire. Uh, obviously everyone's different, but generally uh, the pe- people... Usually this constellates around food or sex. Um, And sometimes it's just that the mind is not quite settled yet. It's just really reflecting that the the mind is is, uh, going out to look at this or that. It's not quite settled yet. So the simplest possible thing is just just to return, just to return, just to return. And have a little bit of faith in that. Again, picking up what on what Catherine was talking about yesterday, if we're using the whole body, um, and uh, or even just with the breath or the metta, you can pick up on the resonances of, of pl- pleasure, pleasantness, in the breath. When does the breath become a little bit delightful, a little bit uh, lovely? Or when is there in this field do it, uh, of the body doing metta or doing whole body breathing, whatever it is, when is there a little bit of pleasantness somewhere? That kind of uh, vibration. And gently, gently tending to that, caring for that, picking up on that. Because eventually uh, there will be enough of that there that the mind doesn't want to go and daydream about other kinds of pleasures. It's got what it needs right here. Feels good right here. Feels good enough. Tasty right here. Nice. And so that takes a little bit of sensitivity to what uh, what the feeling is in the body with the breath, or with the metta, with each phrase of the metta, whatever you're doing, and really being sensitive to those currents and picking up on them, tending to them. Just to say one thing about... Um, uh, sexual images or, or fantasies or, or that come up in meditation if we don't talk much about this but um, of course it's human you know it's what's going to be what, what part of what comes into the mind and part of what the mind snags on and, and uh, uh, gets caught up in a little bit so, and we could talk a lot about this but just to say one thing um, oftentimes what happens is when when an uh, when the mind is caught caught up in that way, we get a little bit um, hooked on the daydream aspect, on the fantasy or the image of what's going on, and we lose touch with the body. And so the mind is just spinning, and it's a little bit disconnected. It's quite possible, if you realize that's going on, it's quite possible to actually come, to have a look what's going on in the body at that point. So maybe even let this thing be there and feel into the body. And it might be that the sexual energy is felt in the body, something we're not often usually in contact with because too much in the thoughts. And then maybe that energy can be opened to, open to, open the body to that energy. That energy is actually 
interesting, not too far away from the kind of pleasure that arises as samadhi deepens. This is quite important to, to be able to uh, you know, develop the ability to do that and, and open in that way to the sexual energy. And, of course, if nothing else works, there's the cold shower. Um, okay, so the second one is ill will and aversion. Um, and just moving very quickly through, through this, so there's lots we, we won't have time to say. Um, you know, what's happening here sometimes is the mind is caught up a little bit in negativity towards someone. Uh, or something, uh, someone either in one's environment or elsewhere, the mind is latched on with uh, e- either wishing them harm or anger or, or, or whatever towards them. And so, you know, an obvious antidote there would be the meta practice. Uh, and just beginning, say, this, this is not helping, this feeling. Let's, uh, let's put something else in, let's direct the mind in another way. sometimes actually can be helpful to give the metta to oneself at that point. Even though I'm angry at someone else, can give the metta to myself. Metta will come in and start softening and opening and uh, reshaping, recoloring the mind and the perceptions. And sometimes the Buddha talks about seeing the beautiful in what is not beautiful. In other words, here's, for instance, this person that I... uh, Maybe I'm irritated with them or I don't know anything about them but the mind has created a picture of them and finds them not beautiful. And the Buddha says, can you, can you actually uh, play with your perception, with your way of looking and find something beautiful there? Probably don't know much about this person but actually what can I reflect on? What can I recognize and see the beauty in the not beautiful? And they are actually trying to uh, gently reshape the uh, quality, that, that the actual perception, in fact. Third possibility is to feel the pain in aversion. Feel the pain in aversion. When there's aversion, pay attention. Hear. Sometimes, with all these hindrances, like desire and aversion, we go there to the object. And we don't feel so much what's happening here. And I don't like this person. How does it feel here, right here, the heart center? How does that feel? How does my body feel? You actually begin to see, ouch, this hurts. The aversion hurts. And what if I just pay attention to that? And I can refine that a little bit and actually really hone in on the, the Vedana. And we'll get to talk about this in the next couple of days. The quality of unpleasantness, the painful quality in the body when there is this aversion. Somewhere right here, it's usually in the heart center, but it could be anywhere along this central axis. Something will feel tight, constricted, a little bit heavy. And what if instead of being obsessed with that person or that thing, I just train the attention and keep it right here on that pain, on that tightness. Really, really skillful. Partly what's happening there uh, is we're simplifying the attention. In a lot of these hindrances, everything gets very complicated. And so taking it just here in the body to just this unpleasantness, moment to moment, it's finding the simplest possible level of what's going on in all this complexity. And then through that, things can simplify. Things can simplify. And sometimes with anger, another possibility, is actually that it's important to listen. Something's going on, something's welling up inside that I need to listen to. It's communicating not just uh, an unskillful uh, factor of mine, but it's actually communicating something important to me. There's a treasure here, I need to listen. Maybe my voice is coming through, maybe my insight is coming through, maybe my passion and energy is coming through. I need to listen sometimes. So there's a question. Is, this, is there something here I need to listen to in the very anger? And again, there's, there's a, 
the possibility of some skill here. Anger often has a lot of energy to it. And maybe uh, I can open up the body, so to speak. I open up the space of the body to the energy of the anger. And then sometimes it's possible that within the anger, I can kind of filter out strength and power, which are wholesome, good, important qualities, mixed up in the middle of the anger. And so instead of just being a poison, we're actually getting something golden, something beautiful from right from the middle of the anger. It takes it takes a little bit of learning how to do that. It's, it's really, really, uh, potentially very, very important. With aversion too, it's really interesting, if you, if you start to get interested in these hindrances, it's really interesting to notice how aversion is often very a, a key factor in keeping other hindrances in place. It's actually supporting other hindrances and sometimes other quite subtly negative fact, uh, uh, um, manifestations of mind. For instance, boredom. It's impossible to be bored without aversion. Aversion is coming in to keep boredom in place. So, I mean, there's lots to say about boredom, but if we just pick out one option uh, that that gives us, is that when there's a state of boredom, you could say that's a mixture of hindrances, state of boredom. And one option is actually to pay closer attention to the state itself, this blah, this uninterested uh, feeling, this flatness. Pay closer attention to the very state and and you begin to see through the closer attention that it involves aversion to the moment, to what's going on. Subtle, usually. You can begin, one can begin to sensitize to the very state and the texture of boredom. What does this boredom feel like? What's its resonance in the body? How's the texture of the mind? Subtle, sensitize to that. In sensitizing to it, we're actually opening to it with less aversion. And with less aversion, what was boredom can actually transform, open, morph into calmness, sometimes very lovely calmness. They're quite close together, boredom and calmness. The only thing that's making the difference is aversion and lack of sensitivity. Sometimes someone said to me on the phone, a couple of days ago, I was <clears throat> on retreat somewhere else. And so I, it's like I can't get to the present moment. There's a resistance to just being. There's a resistance. Well, that resistance is also a kind of aversion. But we don't need necessarily to make that resistance into a problem. The resistance is what's happening in the present moment. The resistance is the present moment. It's not like it's an obstacle to the present moment. That resistance is it. So what would it be to... This, just take that as what the present moment is and come into relationship with the quality of resistance. Okay, so the third hindrance is dullness and drowsiness, uh, sometimes translated as sloth and torpor. And this is really, really common, uh, probably uh, with this and the next one, the most, most common at the beginnings of retreats. And... Possible, many, many things possible. One is to breathe a little longer, especially if you're doing breath practice. Actually, take more breath in and uh, fill the body with energy that way. Or if you think of it in other terms, you're oxygenating more. And you're raising energy in the body, it raises energy in the mind. So breathe longer, let the breath help you. Be, Be supported by the breath. Usually when we get dull and drowsy, the breath gets very... If you listen to someone when they're falling asleep and what their breath... Is like it's a very short in breath and a very short, heavy out breath, and and go against that. Do something else. Bring bring more breath in. Uh, also, paying more attention to the in breath is really really helpful. So with the in breath. You can feel this energetically. The body is energized. There's actually more energy coming in. 
pay more attention to the in-breath and to the quality of energy that it brings. And it raises the whole energy of everything. And sometimes when there's even a little bit of dullness and drowsiness, the body reflects it as it reflects everything. And it reflects it even someone else can see it. The head, the head uh, nods, etc. The, the posture, the back crumples a little bit. And just reaffirming the uprightness of the posture you can feel a different energy come in. And if you have to do that again and again and again, really, really helpful, really helpful. You're, you're reshaping uh, the direction of the mind. You can also, if you have a visual imagination, you can imagine a bright sun in the middle of your head or in your heart, like bright white, white light. And just imagine it there and keep, keep imagining that as you're doing whatever you're doing. Look at it. Get, let the brightness... Uh, come in to brighten the mind. There's something else that's quite important. When there's dullness and drowsiness, the mind contracts. It becomes small. It's what happens when we go to sleep is the mind kind of pulls in on itself. It withdraws from uh, the senses and, and contracts. We curl up and huddle up. And that actually happens when we get dull and drowsy, when the mind gets dull and drowsy. So one thing that's really helpful is actually opening opening the senses more, opening up the space of the mind. So right now, you can uh, actually take in the corners of the room, the whole space of the room. And if you're sensitive, you can actually see just doing that opens up the energy in the, in the mind. Can you feel that? It's, if the mind is, it's quite subtle, but if the mind is just a little bit dull and dry, it's actually really, really helpful to do that. Either with your eyes closed, be more spacious, or with the eyes open, take in more space. And if it's really strong, stand up. You know, just stand up. It's hard to fall asleep when you're standing up. So just stand up and you're giving a message to others that you're uh, being proactive with this really common hindrance. It's a really, really uh, important kind of intervention sometimes. Sometimes what also needs to happen is the body needs to, to move or to open. So walk faster in your walking path. Get some energy going. Or maybe you need to go for a run or a brisk walk. Or do something like yoga and actually open up the energy channels in the body. Because it's not so much the mind itself that's tired, it's the energy that's a bit sluggish. So some uh, yoga postures or something like that, qigong or whatever, really helps. Fourth one is restlessness and worry. Sometimes when you read the Buddha originally, uh, you get the sense that he's more talking about w- w- the effects on the mind of not caring for our e- ethical uh, uh, behavior, etc. And then one is beset by guilt and, and worry about being found out and that sort of thing. Um, but it has more subtle uh, manifestations. Here, uh, the out-breath can be really helpful. So organically, where, whereas the in-breath has this, tends to have this quality of energization, the out-breath tends to have a quality of letting go. The, bro- the body is literally letting go, letting go. And again, you can tune into that. You can tune into that quality of letting go and calming that the out-breath brings. And that can help soothe, help calm uh, the restlessness, the agitation in, in, in the system. And here again, spaciousness can be really, really key, really helpful. So oftentimes, um, again, the mind has gotten a bit contracted over this or that. So this is, all these hindrances, the mind is in a contracted state, all of them. And so spaciousness is generally really helpful. Sometimes you can give attention to the restlessness and the agitation, particularly its bodily manifestation, this ants in the pants, the antsiness, the, the, the dis-ease in the body, and actually create a space around that and really, really allow that. It's like bubbling up of a moment of, of antsiness, a moment of disease, like a little uh, bubble exploding then disappears and another bubble exploding and disappears, like you're watching a pop bubble and these bubbles appearing and then disappearing, and giving that lots of space. What's happening in all of these hindrances is the aversion to them 
is feeding them and locking them into place. And if one finds that if, if you can create a bit of space, let that bubble up. Allow, allow, allow the bubbling moment to moment uh, in the body, its manifestation in the body, that's taking away the factor of it's subduing the aversion, taking away the factor that's keeping the whole thing spinning. It's a really, really important principle. A lot of times with hindrances, and this is a general thing now, there can be an emotion underneath. There can be, it, it looks like what's going on is this. It looks like it's sense desire. It looks like it's ill will. It looks like it's just restlessness, this very unsettledness in the mind, or this or that. Or it looks like it's dullness and drowsiness. And it is that. But in a way, that's just a secondary manifestation of an emotion underneath that's asking for connection, that's needing us uh, to connect with it. And it's actually that that's fueling it. The hindrance, if you like, is a bit of a smokescreen or a a kind of symptom of something a little bit deeper. So it's always really worth having a more gentle look underneath. How, How is the heart right now? Is there something going on that perhaps I'm not connecting to or not allowing or not turning towards? And sometimes that thing is actually, is actually a really beautiful emotion. It's not necessarily a difficult one. It might be something really beautiful that we're actually, for some reason, keeping at bay. And again, to pick up on we said, what we said several times today, very quickly, uh, the view, not even quickly, but oftentimes these things are underpinned by a subtle view shouldn't be feeling restlessness or this emotion, whatever it is shouldn't be there I shouldn't be having this emotion sometimes that view is not even verbal, it's not conscious and it's operating and it's operating and it has enormous power and it's locking and feeding, locking the whole thing into place and feeding it, exacerbating it it can be very very subtle but if one can find, oh, oh it's, there, there is this emotion going on, or maybe a constellation of emotions, and connect with that. Allow that. Hold that. Hold it in kindness. What is that? To hold this emotion in kindness and care. Through that, something in the whole being, the body, the chitta, the heart, something can soften through the relationship uh, with. It can open Something can warm, and through all that, it can begin to settle. The whole, the whole thing begins to settle. And all of it is coming from the relationship with, from the relationship to this emotion. It's not coming from anything else. It's just coming from the relationship to the emotion. <clears throat> so when we woven into all this... Uh, is the whole question of effort, which I just want to say something very brief about, as it's a huge subject. It's the whole question of effort is woven into all this, the hindrances and how my practice is going and all that. And ju- just briefly, we can talk about effort on at least, at least two different levels. So we can talk about the whole sort of the level of the day, the day of retreat, the day of practice. And, uh, for example, what happens between sittings? Uh, is, is there a continuity of practice? Do I need to really take care that there is a continuity of practice? Is that somewhere where I can bring more energy, more commitment uh, in? So for every person, every day, it's a question. It's not some, even a right or wrong answer, it's a question. What's helpful here? What's helpful? Or is it that actually something in the way that I'm relating to this day of practice is actually squeezing too hard? And it's more like the day needs to breathe, so to speak. Maybe there needs to be more time for connection with nature, for appreciation, for just a sense of having a bit more space in the day. And this will change day to day as you go through your retreat. The important thing, again, is sensitivity, openness, feeling, what feels helpful, what's needed, am I willing to try a bit more, a bit less, that's really what's crucial, what's helpful, 
And sometimes in the uh, breathing of the day and having a bit more space in the day, more inspiration can come. The heart is more touched. And if sometimes squeezing too hard, that stuff gets squeezed out and there's a bit of dryness that comes in. And samadhi, if that's what we're talking about, does not deepen in uh, a heart environment of dryness. It, It doesn't. So there's the level of the whole day and there's also the level of in meditation in this moment. And this is very subtle. You know, what does it need right now? Does it need a bit more gas uh, my foot on the gas, on, on the accelerator, or does it need just just back off a little bit? So it's a, it, there's a real art here. All these hindrances that we're talking about can manifest very, very strongly and grossly, of course, we know that, and they can also manifest very, very subtly. When they get more subtle, so for instance, uh, there's this word sinking. Uh, it's not really falling asleep or very groggy, it's just a little bit of dullness come in. The edge, the clarity goes out of practice. A bit of, a bit of sort of uh, the, the the life, the sense of brightness goes sinking and drifting. It's not really that there's a great lot of agitation. It's more that the mind just keeps spinning off into this or that kind of random thoughts. Subtle manifestation of restlessness. Those two, sinking and drifting, as subtle hindrances are really interesting because it's hard to tell in this moment, let's say it's getting a little bit uh, dull, a little bit of sinking, does it need more effort? Things, oh, it needs more effort. Sometimes it needs less effort. Sometimes it needs more effort. Very subtle. I have to find out in the moment what, what, what's needed here. More pedal, less pedal. And the same with the drifting. You tend to think, oh, my mind keeps going off. Let's just hold things tighter, put more effort in. Actually, that that can help, but actually sometimes you you get more if you do less. You actually just back off, be more gentle, be more delicate, softer with the effort, and and things go deeper. So there's a real art here, and there's a place for uh, experimenting, playing. Very subtle. In fact, if there's one thing to emphasize more than anything else, it's exactly that. It's, it's playfulness and experimentation and, and improvising. You know, sometimes, we're, we're, am I getting it right? Uh, so for instance, maybe if the mind is drifting a lot and I try something and it turns out to be the wrong thing, well, so what? It's okay, just come back and do, and do the opposite thing. There, there are no mistakes, really. There's just sensitivity and playfulness. Again, we go back to attitude. I don't know what they'll do today, but you know these rooks out here, for some of you, maybe your first time, the the, the black birds, they're like big crows, they're called rooks, and there's colonies of them in the trees around Guy House. If you watch them, you know, sometimes they're flying, there's a lot of flapping going on. Uh, and that's how they need to fly. That's in that moment how they're flying. A lot of energy and is going into getting off the ground or getting in the, going in this direction or that direction. And other times, other days, you just see they're coasting. And the change of direction or the movement here or there is just the barest uh, movement of the wings sensitive to the current, sensitive to the movement in, in the body field, in the energy, picking up on that. And there's a play, you know, they're a bit like ravens, actually. They're quite playful. There's a playfulness that, that you can enjoy the improvisation from the sensitivity. And yeah, sometimes we need to flap a lot. It's what's needed. You know, need, we need to bring, bring the energy in. There's a kind of, you know, sometimes at least, maybe a lot of the time, if we talk about samadhi and settling the mind and harmony, there's a kind of opportunism. We're, we're like those rooks. It's like, ah, let's just ride this current. Let's ride that current. You're sensitive to that and sensitive to where, where the openings are and what, which currents can be helpful. <clears throat> Especially, uh, again, following Catherine saying, if we're using this whole body sensitivity, you're using the sensitivity of the body uh, to be sensitive to the currents that are available. So there's more art here than science, more art than formula. You know, do this when this happens, do that when that happens. There, there's an art, there's a responsiveness here. 
And you know, sometimes, oftentimes, samadhi is uh, really not as far away as we tend to think. We tend to think, I'm just so caught up. And actually, somewhere in the currents of what's going on, there's something we can pick up on or relate to differently that allows things to open in a different way. It's not, it's not always uh, as far away as we think. Not at all. Sometimes it's literally just, just a nudge away, just a gentle movement away. The last hindrance is doubt. Uh, and again, could say a lot about this. Um, it's an interesting one because, um, well, actually before we say that, one can doubt the teachings. One can be confused about what one is doing and why and how it's all fitting together. Uh, one can doubt oneself, and that's very common. Can I do this? Uh, maybe others can, but I can't. And we can doubt teachers. We can doubt all of that and sometimes combinations. Uh, doubt's interesting partly because sometimes it's good to doubt. It's, it's reflecting, it's a manifestation of something really important. Our ability to question especially question the teachings. Uh, oftentimes we're too timid in our questioning. There's something, there's a kind of, this or that is out of bounds. I can't possibly, it doesn't even occur to us to question this or that. Inquiry stops here. We don't even realize that inquiry stops here. Or there's certain assumptions that we're holding without even realizing about all kinds of things. Self, the world, the Dharma, reality, all kinds of stuff. But, so there's something good in questioning and doubting, but oftentimes it's a matter of timing. So oftentimes it may not be in the middle of a, uh, or, or it may be in terms of a bigger picture, on the path, it's too early. I need to understand what I'm doing, how the path works, how practice works, what the framework is. That takes a while. And then, then maybe I can start picking at that. So there's timing on that level. There's also the timing of maybe right now in the meditation is not the time to uh, wrestle with this doubt. So one can turn to the doubt in the mind. And you know, this is important. It's important to get clear about this. It's important to wrestle with these questions. Not right now in the middle of this meditation session. I will get to you. You kind of park it. But you give that questioning in the mind an honoring and a reassurance that you're going to get to. That's important, I think. Um, and, and then it can hear that. It can hear that and let go a little bit because it knows it's going to get picked up later on. Otherwise, doubt can get uh, paralyzing. It's a sense of there's doubt and then nothing can happen where it doesn't have to be that way. We can do our practice and question both. And sometimes you see doubt is actually just a manifestation of, of restlessness or aversion or whatever. It's not, there's not really a deep questioning there. It's just the mind is restless and it's moving back and forth in doubt. This, that, this, that. He says this, she says that. <clears throat> okay, last thing uh, I want to finish with is, is something very general. Uh, but in a way it's perhaps uh, the most important thing. Um, you know we all know this when a hindrance it feels like a hindrance or they all gang up and they've got us we, they've really got us we are in their grip you know everyone's experienced that actually we're not in their grip it's more that we're clinging to them or uh, in aversion to them <clears throat> but two, at least two things are happening there that are really key. One we've already touched on is the taking it personally. That's part of what needs to be there when I'm really in the grip of a hindrance. I take it personally as a, as a personal reflection, what I said right at the beginning. And that's one piece. Can I let that go? Can I see it differently? The other thing that happens when we're really in the grip of hindrances is that we believe them. We believe how they color and shape our perception. And we believe that what we see through the lenses of the hindrances is reality. And in a way, that's something here. That's the most important piece of, of everything. 
When we're really hooked, we're believing that what we see is a version, I really believe that person is like that. Whatever it is. I believe this is reality because I'm perceiving it, because the perception is colored, shaped. So that's why the Buddha Buddha says, his primary instruction is, know that this hindrance is happening. Just be mindful. Ah, uh, whatever it is, uh, restlessness. This is the hindrance of rest. It's very simple. But then you're relativizing what's happening. I know this is happening. It is a hindrance. And then I also know it's coloring. So just that knowing, just knowing this hindrance is happening, labeling it even, is a big part of unhooking, or getting less hooked at least. So this is huge. This is really huge. Because hindrances are not just meditative manifestations. They happen in our lives. Walking down a city street and hindrances may well be happening. They're not confined to obstacles to meditation. So they happen in our lives and they, happen, and they have this effect of shaping and uh, locking us into beliefs and perceptions of what we then think and fall for as real. And that's, in a way, the biggest and most important thing. We get convinced of what we think reality is. The mind state always colors the perception. The mind state always colors the perception. So through the hindrances, we can actually learn and understand something about the dependent arising of perception. There is no more deep... uh, lesson in the whole of the Dharma than about the dependent arising of perception. There's nothing more important in the whole Dharma to learn than about the dependent arising of perception. And this we can understand and learn through the hindrances. So the mind state colors the perception. What I see and what I believe, because I'm perceiving it, comes from the mind state. Actually the perception also colors the mind state. It works backwards too, as always. They're not separate. We tend to think they're separate. Mind state and perception are not even separate. There's something potentially very deep to to fathom, to uh, discover in all this. There's insight not just in relationship to the hindrances, but insight from the hindrances, as I said right at the beginning. They're not just obstacles, they're golden opportunities to learn about this most, most deep aspect of the Dharma. About how we uh, color perception and then we fall for what we think is real. Everything hinges on that. They're not just a nuisance, they're, they're guides and they can be. So there's, there's real potential here. And again, that, that can help us in our, our relationship, our attitude to that. Let's have a minute of silence together.